Good afternoon, and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Tim Lynch, and I'm the director of Cato's Project on Criminal Justice. Today we want to examine the impact that the Bush administration has had upon our law and examine the role of the press in a constitutional republic during a time of war. There are basically two schools of thought when it comes to the proper role of reporters during wartime. One school of thought says when we're at war, there's basically two sides, and you're either supportive of your government or you're supportive of the enemy. And according to this school, uh, members of the press should subordinate their findings to the foreign policy objectives of the president acting as commander-in-chief. The other school says that reporters need to maintain an independent posture to be a watchdog on the government and what it's doing, to report not only the good news, but to report on instances of corruption, incompetence, deception, and illegality. And our guest speaker is well qualified to speak on these issues. He's been covering the Department of Justice since 1999, first for the Los Angeles Times, next for the New York Times since 2002. So he's covered Attorney General John Ashcroft, Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez, and our present Attorney General Michael Mukasey. And he's broken many stories, most notably the revelation that the National Security Agency was conducting warrantless wiretaps on international phone calls, a story which he broke with his colleague James Rison in December of 2005. I don't think it is an exaggeration to say that this story is going to be studied in our journalism schools and in our law schools in the years to come because of the controversy that came immediately after uh, this revelation. President Bush called the report disgraceful, and Alberto Gonzalez went so far as to float the idea of prosecuting the New York Times when he appeared on Meet the Press. Together, Bush and Gonzalez did something I thought was quite telling. After uh, the story came to light and civil lawsuits were brought against the federal government in the wake of the story, lawsuits that were challenging the legality of the wiretapping program, Lawyers in the civil division of the Department of Justice uh, applied for security clearances so that they could study the details of the program so that they could go into court to defend against these lawsuits. And these security clearances were granted. But when lawyers with the Inspector General of the Department of Justice and lawyers with the Office of Professional Responsibility applied for security clearances so that they could study the details of the program, so that they could determine whether or not legal rules or ethical rules had been violated, their applications for security clearances were denied. And that, that's kind of like a police chief restraining the internal affairs division of a police department from going and looking at some dubious practices of their patrol units. At the very least, it raises red flags because something peculiar is going on. Now, several members of Congress have thanked our guest speaker because they've acknowledged that without his reporting, they basically wouldn't know what's going on. Uh, they uh, were in the dark about some of the efforts on the part of the Bush administration to go around laws relating to wiretaps and even to the treatment of prisoners. And I think that's the key point in all of this. The founders of our country recognized that in order for the electorate to assess the performance of their elected representatives, they need to have information. And they recognize that if the means of acquiring that information could be censored or blocked or distorted, then our entire system of checks and balances begins to break down and constitutional liberty is thereby uh, endangered. And I think that's probably why a panel of judges decided to award our guest speaker the Pulitzer Prize for reporting on the NSA story in 2006. So would you please welcome uh, the author of Bush's Law, The Remaking of American Justice, Mr. Eric Lischblau. Well, thank you very much, uh, and thank you, Tim. You, you've obviously uh, studied up on your NSA history. You, you know this about as well as I do at this point. I think you could deliver the, the, the timeline uh, uh, straight from the book. Um, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here today um, uh, talking about uh, uh, the remaking of American justice, which is, which is the subtitle of, uh, of my book, uh, Bush's Law. It, it's, it's a book that, that sets out to operate on, on two levels. Um, first off, 
to look at really a remarkable period in American history, the aftermath of, of 9-11, and the, uh, the players who, uh, within the executive branch, were responsible for making critical decisions in, in the, the hours and days and months after 9-11 that are reverberating even today. Um, and I, I don't try and cast these people as, as heroes and villains. You know, it's easy to sort of offer up, you know, an indictment. Well, how could they have done this? You know, what, what, what were they thinking? You know, when I go to college campuses, I've been, as I've been doing since the book came out, you know, people say, well, well sh- shouldn't, shouldn't uh, George Bush be impeached? You know, shouldn't Dick Cheney be, be thrown out of office? You know, what about John Yoo, who wrote all those memos? Shouldn't he be disbarred? You know, I, I'm still first and foremost a reporter. And, and what I try and do in the book and what I'll try and do today is basically to tell stories, to, to put you in the room for, for when uh, a lot of these, these critical decisions were made and just try and understand how these decisions were made, the pressures under which they were made. Um, and that, that, that's the first level under which the, 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 the book um, operates. The second level, uh, as Tim said very eloquently, is uh, the perspective of a reporter, of a reporter here in Washington um, I was fortunate enough to be witness to a lot of these events at uh, at a critical time, an equally critical time in uh, really the history of journalism. Um, you know, the NSA story is, um, well, I think probably go down as my 15 minutes of fame. Ho- hopefully I won't live through anything qu- quite that uh, tense again. I, I-, I hope not. Um, and uh, it, it um, was really a, a clash of, of fundamental principles. Um, you know, on the one hand, uh, national security and uh, and the, the the White House's intense desire to keep things secret in a time of war, and on the other hand, uh, the public's right to know and the, and the First Amendment and the, the constitutional principles that uh, that guide the media in it in its watchdog role. And I devote a lot of a lot of time and, and, and attention to, to that uh, that thought in the book because I think it is a critical one. Um, I think that in the early uh, in the early months and even the early years after 9-11, the media had, um, had abandoned its, its usual skepticism. Uh, you know, we are, we are trained to see, uh, Gay Talese wrote in, in, in his book on journalism years and years ago, we are trained to see the warts on the world. We're trained to be the skeptics. You know, if you, get, if you hear some from, something from your mother, you write it down, but you get a second source. Um, and that, that's usually the attitude that we bring uh, to doing our job. After 9-11, there was understandably, I think, um, a, a pendulum shift, shift for the entire country. Uh, the entire country was was outraged by what had happened. Uh, there was a sense of, of uh, wanting vengeance, wanting to understand how this had happened, you know, connecting the dots and, and trying to do everything in our power to stop this from happening again. Uh, for journalists, the, the easy pickings were uh, the stories on what the next threat would be. To get on the front page, it was just a matter of getting uh, intelligence reports, supposedly secret intelligence reports, but they weren't all that secret, um, showing al-Qaeda planning scuba diving attacks off the Pacific or uh, crop du- or using crop dusters or hazmat trucks or uh, helicopter tourist planes. You know, we were all swept up in that. I don't think it, it was certainly out of naivete. I don't think it was an intentional effort to manipulate the public, but I think it was the mood of that time in, in late, certainly late 2001, in 2002, even into 2003. Uh, I remember um, uh, an episode that, that I tell, tell in the book uh, in, uh, I think it was early 2003, where uh, John Ashcroft and the Attorney General was at a, at a congressional hearing um, and was on the defensive a bit over, over elements of the Patriot Act. And Ashcroft, um, as he was good at doing, turned the tables and went on the offensive by uh, by announcing to, to some fanfare to the, the lawmakers um, on the committee that he had that very morning had unsealed a uh, had unsealed an indictment um, against a cleric in Yemen who was tied directly to Bin Laden, who had supposedly hand delivered twenty million dollars to Bin Laden personally and uh, that there was a mosque in Brooklyn, the Al-Farouk Mosque in Brooklyn, that was also tied to this cleric and tied to bin Laden himself. And I remember I didn't even wait for, ben, for, uh, for Ashcroft to finish his, his testimony. Uh, you know, I raced out of the, the uh, congressional hearing room and, and got on the phone to the, uh, to the assignment area before they could go into their page one meeting and said, oh, we got a hot one here, you know. Ashcroft is, is, has just tied this mosque in Brooklyn to bin Laden. You know, they're financing millions of dollars 
dollars, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and sure enough, the story led the paper the next day, top of the front page, as, di- as it did in most papers around the country. Um, and I got some flack immediately from some of our reporters in Brooklyn who actually dealt with these people at the mosque and, and, and had to deal with the fallout from this. And, you know, they were looking at the same indictment that I was, and they read it very differently. They, they said, you know, there's the evidence tying this mosque to this cleric and then to al-Qaeda and then to bin Laden is pretty thin. Do, do you think that this was fair? Didn't, didn't we hype, buy into the administration's hype, basically? And I just sort of wrote it off at the time, you know, well, you know, they're just bitter because they didn't get on the front page, and we did in Washington. Um, but then as the case wound its way through the courts, it became pretty clear that they were right. Um, and there was a conviction in the end. The, the, the cleric was, in fact, convicted. But the conviction had nothing to do with the, uh, with the mosque in Brooklyn, which had generated all these headlines early on. Um, and it had really very little to do with al-Qaeda. It had to do with funding support for Hamas. So that, that early, uh, early sensation-grabbing um, allegation you know, turned out to be much less than advertised. And early on, there were a million examples of that. Um, of the media buying into that. Now, you can ask, and I'm, I'm often asked, you know, were, were you being intentionally manipulated? You know, did the government know that they were selling us a bill of goods? You know, you can, you can get into the administration's head maybe as well as I can. I tell a number of stories uh, about um, sort of the press machinery that was, um, that was in full force, certainly, in those years after 9-11. Um, and and the, the obvious corollary, I'm sure, has, has occurred to, to many of you um, in that same period is what was going on in, in Iraq um, and, and the coverage of WMD. I mean, what we were seeing at home in the war on terror and the coverage here was obviously analogous to, uh, to what we were hearing about, uh, hearing out of um, uh, the, the intel reports uh, out of Baghdad and WMD. And again, the press would be accused of not uh, not adopting a skeptical enough attitude. Now, I think that, that the press has rebounded pretty well from that. I, I think that come 2004, it's tough to, to say, you know, when, when did the light bulb go off? But I think around 2004, you know, after seeing enough of these cases kind of collapse, um, enough of, you know, Jose Padilla, you may remember, was the, the dirty bomber that Ashcroft announced, to, again, to much fanfare live from Moscow, you know, that this guy was about to detonate a, uh, a radioactive dirty bomb on the streets of America. Uh, you know, we had heard enough of these. I think we, we kind of got our bearings back, and, and we realized that you know, yes, we all wanted to stop another attack. Yes, we were all Americans. Uh, yes, we were all on the same side. But we still had our jobs to do as reporters, and that meant asking tough questions and asking questions that might, you know, conceivably put us on the other side of the team, you know, and, and, and maybe even be uh, setting ourselves up as, as doing something unpatriotic. You know, you knew that those, those questions and those accusations would follow. Um, but come 2004, you know, there were any number of stories that, that came out in the media um, that were hard-hitting stories on national security. Um, the uh, Abu Ghraib uh, in, in Iraq, C- CBS News in 60 Minutes first broke that story. Uh, you know, we then would see stories out of Guantanamo, uh, stories about waterboarding. In my paper, uh, waterboarding was a term no one had ever heard of before it appeared in, in the Times in 2004. Um, uh, stories about uh, black site prisons uh, run by the CIA in Europe in 2005 in the Washington Post, a long list. Um, the NSA surveillance was one that I was, uh, was most directly involved in, and then our big follow-up to that was uh, another program on the CIA's um, surveillance of international banking records. The, the NSA surveillance program was, I think, probably kind of the, the microcosm of this, this real tension between um, national security secrets and the public's right to know, um, because what you had there was, was a program that was described by Bush and Alberto Gonzalez and others as, as perhaps the most secretive program in the government. This was a program that uh, allowed the NSA, which historically and legally and traditionally had, had been in the foreign intelligence business, to eavesdrop on Americans' international communications, to, in other words, train its satellites inward um, if there was a suspected link to al-Qaeda. 
um, and to do so without going through the court, without going through um, the, uh, the secret intelligence court that had been set up in 1978 after Watergate specifically uh, to guard against presidential abuses. Um, there's a whole warrant system that, uh, that was put in place for that very purpose and under a presidential authorization signed by Bush in secret just weeks after 9-11, um, that, that entire system was bypassed. Um, what I talk about in, in my book um, that hasn't really come out before is the idea that that, that, that order set off really just a, a, a firestorm of anxiety within the administration um, hours after it was signed, at the, uh, oftentimes by people who within the administration who didn't know what was going on and were worried that something suspicious, something maybe illegal was going on uh, at the FBI, uh, technicians and agents stumbled onto this and, 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 and said, what the hell is the NSA doing? The NSA does not target Americans. Uh, they were so concerned that they, um, that they immediately shot this up to the director's level who told them that, don't worry, this has the president's personal blessing. Um, turned out, though, that uh, there at that point was not even a, a formal Justice Department opinion from the Office of Legal Counsel, which, which weighs in on these matters. Um, and John Ashcroft, again, as I talk about in the book, um, complained to his aides that the White House had sort of shoved this program in front of, the, in front of him, shoved the piece of paper in front of him, uh, and told him to sign the thing without any uh, sort of legal backup or legal justification to say, does the president have the power to do what they were doing? It was only at that point that they went to John Yu, who I, who I mentioned uh, earlier, who became sort of the, the go-to guy, the go-to lawyer at the Justice Department on, uh, on all things national security, and got him to write an opinion saying that under the president's wartime powers, uh, he did have the authority to essentially bypass uh, the foreign intelligence surveillance law. So this this was causing major, major anxiety um, for months uh, in, in its first, um, in its early operations. That would then lead, of course, to this now famous scene two and a half years later uh, at the bedside of John Ashcroft. Uh, and that was a scene that, that I first wrote about in the, in the Times. Um, uh, I remember I wrote the story, New, New Year's Eve of 2005, just after our initial story appeared in the, in the New York Times, a couple of weeks after the initial story, um, uh, in which Alberto Gonzalez, who was then the White House counsel, and Andy Card, who was then the chief of staff, uh, went to Ashcroft's bedside uh, because they could not get, Ashcroft had been hospitalized, he had had fairly serious surgery, um, and his deputy refused to sign off on the program because he was being told by his lawyers that this might be illegal, what the president was doing. So uh, they needed the signature of the Justice Department every 45 days to keep this going. They couldn't get it, so they went to Ashcroft to, uh, to get his signature, he was doped up. Uh, he had, had already uh, yielded his powers of the Attorney General to his deputy, James Comey, um, and uh, there was a dramatic scene with, with James Comey essentially racing to the hospital to try and beat uh, Alberto Gonzalez and, and uh, Andy Card there, and there was a standoff at Ashcroft's hospital bedside um, to see what Ashcroft would do, and Ashcroft refused to sign this piece of paper. Um, and there's a great scene as, as Andy Card and, and Alberto Gonzalez leave the room in dejection, and Ashcroft's wife has witnessed the whole thing, and, and she sticks her tongue out, out at them as, the, as they're leaving. So one, one final little, little coda to the whole scene. Um, of course, all of this was in secret at the time. No one knew anything about the program. Um, my partner and I at the time, uh, at the times, Jim Risen, uh, and I began hearing some rumblings uh, in, in 2004 um, about some vague intelligence program, and we really didn't know what we were hearing about uh, uh, or, or even, um, you know, whether this is true or not, what agency was running it. There were a million questions. But there was something that seemed to be causing a fair bit of nervousness and anxiety within the administration. Um, and, and we were sort of reporting it separately. Jim and I worked on stories all the time together, but this one we actually worked on separately and, and it was sort of like pulling on, on two strands of the same, same ball of yarn and not realizing we were, we were tugging at the same thing a, 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 until we finally began comparing notes and saying, hey, that, this may actually be the same thing. Um, and uh, as, as Jim always likes to tell it, he figured it all out before I did. So any chance he gets, he points that out to me. Um, and, and to his credit, he, he did 
put some of the pieces together. I put other pieces together before he did, but but it, it was sort of a, a marriage of complementary parts um, that allowed us to sort of figure out what this was all about. That then led to a um, series of meetings with the White House, um, which again I, I lay out in the uh, lay out in the book in an entire chapter, um, where the White House, you know, really begged, pleaded, urged, um, and, and appealed to the editors not to run the story uh, on the grounds that it would do irreparable harm to national security. Um, and, uh, you know, any editor uh, is going to take that seriously, coming at the, the senior levels that it, that it did. Uh, and the first go-around, which was in late 2004, right, right around the time of the election, um, as some of you may remember, um, the editors decided not to run the story. They decided that the national security concerns were just too great um, to run a story that sensitive. Uh, and it was not until a year later, in December 2005, uh, after more angst and debate within the newsroom, um, that the editors uh, reversed course and, uh, and did decide to run the story. Uh, and as Tim said, the, the, the fallout uh, was immediate and kind of continues to this day. We have, uh, we have Congress even now debating um, what to do about the NSA's spy powers, what to do about immunity for the telecom companies that, um, that took part in this operation, whether or not they should be protected from lawsuits. Uh, there are some 40 lawsuits now pending against them, um, and whether or not those lawsuits should be, should be killed or not. Uh, and Congress can't decide, can't decide what to do. Um, so uh, I never would have imagined when we first wrote the story that, that it would still be a, a matter of such intense debate two and a half years later. But Washington is, is a tough town to figure out, to figure out sometimes. So uh, I'm, I'm hoping that debate will be resolved soon so I can move on to other things. So um, with that, uh, I guess maybe we can open it up for questions. Okay. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, I'll call on people from here. Sure. You want me to say, Okay. Okay, I want to make a few housekeeping announcements before we open it up for Q&A. First, as, uh, as you may know, uh, we typically have a critical commentator at these book forums so that everybody can have the benefit of hearing another perspective. I just wanted to say that I extended an invitation to several people to try to get somebody to come and uh, to express a different point of view, and it just was not, uh, we're just not able to arrange that, but the effort was made. Second thing I wanted to say is that Cato Institute is releasing two books this month that may be of interest to this audience. The first book is directly relevant to today's subject. It's a book called The Cult of the Presidency by my colleague Gene Healy, who's a senior editor here at Cato. And it's a critique of the growing consensus on both the left and the right about uh, this growing consensus about inflated expectations among people all across the political spectrum about what they consider to be the responsibilities of the president. From we tend to look to the presidency these days as somebody who can grow the economy, somebody who should make sure that our children know how to read and do their math. And uh, not right now we expect him to reduce gas prices. So it's these inflated expectations about what we expect uh, from the presidency. And it's a terrific book of uh, critique about how the country has changed, what we expected from our first presidents uh, to what we expect uh, in modern times. The second book is by my colleague uh, Bob Levy. And he's teamed up with our friend at the Institute for Justice, Chip Miller, to write this book called The Dirty Dozen, what, which – is about the 12 worst decisions by the Supreme Court that have expanded the power of government and that have uh, um, eroded freedom. And so we're having a book forum on this coming up on on May 6th. Uh, So you'll get to see uh, which cases among the many. They said it was very hard to determine out of the hundreds of bad cases which were actually the worst 12. So you'll find out which ones they've identified um, when we have that forum on, on May 6th. T- I, Tim, let me just say I'm, I'm encouraged by the fact that you couldn't find another critical view. Maybe, maybe that just means there is no other view. <laughs> um, let me exercise uh, the moderator's prerogative and, and ask the first question. Um, can you elaborate just a little bit more on the decision of the editors to you know, not run the story earlier? That's, that's the NSA that we're yeah. If I, if I didn't see our intern with his finger on the light switch, I would have had the same suspicion. Um, 
the decision of the editors not to run the story at, at earlier, but then the decision to, to run it later. And also, am I right that as the administration, when they became aware that the story was going to run, am I right that they started notifying members of Congress about the program in that interim period? Uh, yeah, okay, a, cu- a couple of things. Um, you know, the, the editor's decision uh, early on, I think, was based on the belief that they would be simply outing a covert program, um, and they were not convinced that the, the, the public interest in this program and the legal concerns surrounding it outweighed the, um, the perhaps legitimate national security concerns. Uh, you know, we, we were aware in our reporting from early on that there were um, concerns within the administration about the legality of this program, that there were um, people within the administration who um, were certainly nervous uh, about the stretching of the president's powers. We, we weren't aware just how serious those concerns became. We, we weren't aware yet at that point, for instance, about the, the Ashcroft hospital scene. Um, but the the editors weren't quite convinced that we were there yet, and um, uh, basically they they thought that um, you know I think you got to put yourselves back in the mindset. And this gets back to what I was talking about earlier um, about sort of the, the pendulum shift with the media. Um, you know, in in the the, the fall of, and well, really the spring, the fall of two thousand and four, when this is being debated. You know, nine eleven was only a couple of years out. Um, and it was a different time. Um, it was a different time in the buildup in Iraq. It was a different time in the war on terror. I think that on issues of, of credibility, the, administra- the administration's credibility had not taken some of the hits that it has now. Um, and and um, the, there was a different national mood. And that, you know, affects editors as well as it affects just sort of the general general population, general citizenry. Um, and... A year later, uh, when they came back to that discussion, when the editors came back to that debate, uh, a couple of things had changed. Um, As I talk about in the book, um, my partner, Jim Risen, at that point was considering um, putting the NSA program in the book that he was writing at that point. So the editors um, agreed to revisit the the entire topic, um, although it was clear that that they were still not going to put it in the paper unless, unless they thought that that um, uh, public interest standard was kind of met. And, uh, you know, we went back, we did more reporting, and the, the legal concerns um, that, that we had heard about a year earlier, um, you know, became even stronger. We, we were well aware of them in 2004. We, came, we became even more convinced just how real they were in 2005. Um, and I think that helped to... to put the editors over the edge in terms of why this story should be published. Um, the, uh, as far as congressional notification, um, i trying to remember. I actually don't think that there were uh, members of Congress who were notified by the NSA program. What, what ha- that, that did actually happen, it was actually quite funny, with the, our big follow-up story to that was about the, the so-called SWIFT banking program. SWIFT is this consortium in Belgium uh, that the CIA had been using and still is using um, to get international banking records, um, another secret program that we wrote about in December of 2006. Um, and uh, a, a, a big reason, I think, that the editors decided to run that story under similar circumstances after the administration had urged them not to run that story either was that, again, the, the committees in Congress knew nothing about this. Banking committees, finance committees um, were, were in the dark about this program, and I tell a story in the book about um, only after it became clear that we were probably going to run our story did the administration then reach out to about 20 members of Congress on various banking and finance committees. Barney Frank, who was the chairman of the uh, banking committee at that time, um, uh, got a call inviting him to a secure room, and there's a folder on the desk, big letters SWIFT on it, and they say they want to brief him on it, and he's a little confused why he's getting a briefing on this now. And he says, and it becomes clear that this is something that's about to be in the media. Um, And he says, well, so if you brief me, does that mean that once it comes out in the media that I can never say anything about it? And they said, yeah, basically. Uh, And he says, 
this this meeting is over. Go, go, go take a walk. He says, ne- next time you want to brief me on something that's not going to be in the media, give me a call. Um, so, you, you know, the, that was a clear case where, you know, Congress was only notified about this stuff because we were on to the story um, and because they realized that that the, the, the oversight that should have been done originally was not. I see. Thank you. Okay, we're going to open it up and take your questions now. I do have three requests. Please, uh, when I call on you, please wait for our microphone to arrive so that everybody can hear your question. Please identify yourself and any affiliation that you may have, and uh, please keep your questions brief. Yes, sir. Uh, Jeff Breinhold. I'm a uh, book reviewer for the Counterterrorism blog. And um, uh, my, I read the book, and my, my, um, one of my impressions of it, it was that it does, it, it does go into quite a lot of detail about the editorial decisions, uh, and it does air some, some at least quasi-dirty laundry of, some main, of a mainstream uh, media outlet. And my question sort of picks up on the, on the first one you answered, and that is the couple things you said about John Ashcroft in the book, and I would, I would suggest that um, much like you uh, noted in the book, um, he, his legacy has sort of enjoyed a renaissance uh, in, the last, in the last couple of years. And my question is, uh, do you feel that the, if, if this book had, gone th- had been required to go through the editorial process of the New York Times, um, the, some of the allegations in it would have remained? And I'm thinking specifically about your reference to how John Ashcroft uh, favors stoning as punishment – and secondly, the, the, the source who told you that he was about to be indicted. Uh, yeah, favors stoning as punishment. You're talking about the religious reference there? Well, I think, I think it's just a, there's a reference in there that says, um, for John Ashcroft, stone, uh, stoning as punishment was, was emboldening or something like that, period. Yeah, that, that was in the, it was in the context of his, uh, his religious views. So I take it you thought that was unfair? A uh, little bit. I mean, I would have liked a footnote to see to find out where where you got that, and and then the second one was the fe- the, the the allegation that he was about to be indicted. You know, but, but it's it's made clear immediately there that that he was uh, uh, either in the text or in the footnote that that there was nothing that he was never about to be indicted. Right. I'm I'm just wondering if that's something the New York Times would have permitted both both those references had they had they had any editorial judgment over your book. Well, I mean, a book. There are. I mean, to answer, the short answer is is that there are a million things in the book that that would not have appeared in the paper. I mean, a book is a completely different format than uh, than a newspaper. Uh, I mean, a book has has a perspective and and format and and um, first person opinion that a newspaper article does not. Um, so, uh, yeah, if this was written in newspaper format, it would have been much, much shorter and probably much less interesting. So. Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, my name is Tad Howard. Um, could you comment on the FISA court, please? Uh, my reading of it is that it's the biggest rubber stamp going, and yet there seems to be a reluctance to take various things in front of them. I've never understood that because it appears to be the most, you know, easy rubber stamp in Washington. And yet people, for some reason, I cannot figure out, are reluctant to use it. Yeah, you get, you know, you certainly get very uh, divergent views on that. Um, The the rubber stamp view is based mainly on the idea that they hardly ever uh, turn down, uh, turn down an application. I mean, the, 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 uh, uh, approval rating for, for applications brought to them is probably something like 99%. Um, the other side, it, it's, it, it's tough to judge, never having been in the room, and hardly any of us have ever been in the room. But um, the other side of that is, you know, that you hear from people at, at OIPR at the, um, within the Justice Department who do prepare these applications is the reason that their batting average is so high is that they are so careful in preparing these, and they only go to them with the sure things. Um, so... Is, is it a rubber stamp? I mean, it, it's probably something less than a rubber stamp, but um, for whatever reason, the, you know, the White House clearly um, wanted to go around the FISA court altogether and, and believe that it was an impediment. As, as, um, as frequently as it was willing to approve the applications that brought them, it just didn't want to deal with them. Um, and there's a, a, a quote um, from David Addington, Vice President Cheney's uh, counselor, 
that Jack Goldsmith first first told, and I I cite in my book, um, uh, where he, he says that uh, uh, after the next major attack, that that annoying court will be blown away. Uh, in other words, we'll get rid of the FISA court altogether. Um, and you know, there are certainly people who think that that the current legislation um, in Congress um, has minimize the role of the FISA court significantly, um, and, and I would hold to that view. Uh, it, it, it's become sort of an after-the-fact um, arbiter of just making sure that the general guidelines are followed. Um, it, in many cases involving, at least involving um, uh, foreign-based intelligence, it's no longer looking at individualized warrants. Um, it's, it's instead looking after the fact uh, to make sure that the procedures are okay so that its role has become quite different. Yes, sir. Uh, Paul Sloan, uh, just retired. Um, for Mr. Lynch first, just to maybe put you on the hook a little, was the not having somebody on a counter uh, argument of points, was that a case of not being able to arrange, or is this issue just too hot to handle for anyone to... Uh... No, it's mostly scheduling. Okay, so it was. And for the author, um, not judging the effectiveness of the program, uh, the surveillance, but in that, pers- in that idea, um, if they had gone through the FISA court or had used it, could have the pro- in your opinion, do you think, could have the program been effective and legal? Um... Yes, I think so, and certainly there are people within people within the administration who thought so. Um, the the the, ma- the main problem in going through the FISA court seemed to be that the NSA was using data mining technology and and you know, fancy algorithms and things that most of us don't understand that would never have have um, would would never have passed muster with the FISA court. Um, they they probably could have found a way, and they have in fact now now found a way to bring that under the auspices of the court. That happened uh, last January, or J- January of two thousand seven. Um, I, I think that that most people had anything to do with this program within the government uh, would tell you that it was not worth the political and legal damage that it caused to find a cute way around the court, um, that, that there would have been a much more direct way to either go through the court or go through Congress or both um, to get authorization under the Patriot Act um, and, and uh, to expand the NSA's powers and expand the, 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 way, they, uh, the way they use the FISA court at the time that the Patriot Act was first being debated. So it was, it, it was seen by many people as just sort of a, uh, overplaying their hand um, unnecessarily. Um, let me ask another question. Um, we were talking about this a little bit before we, we came up here, and there's an ongoing criminal investigation into the leak of the NSA story, as I understand it. So this is a program they wanted to keep secret. It made its way out to the press. It was a classified program, and there's an ongoing investigation. Criminal investigators are trying to find out who leaked some of the information to the story. Can you talk a little bit about that, how it impacts your job as a reporter, because people may not want to talk to you. They will fall under suspicion as being, you know, get swept up into that investigation perhaps unfairly. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, these are, um, these are difficult times for reporters in, in Washington particularly. We, we don't have a shield law. Um, uh, the Senate is considering one, uh, but it's not clear whether it'll pass. You know, we've, we've seen subpoenas used more and more frequently the last few years uh, against reporters, everything from the Judy Miller case to steroids, uh, now in the, um, uh, against a, um, a former USA Today reporter in the Anthrax case. Uh, and it's become, um, if not the preferred method, at least a, um, uh, a, a fairly standard one 
for prosecutors to get information from reporters, and, and that, um, that uh, uh, fear is, is very real. And we now have two FBI leak investigations into both the NSA story and the second story I talked about that I wrote involving the SWIFT banking program. Um, and, yeah, that, that definitely, you know, makes people wary of, of talking, uh, makes people reluctant to talk at all, makes them reluctant to, um, you know, be seen with you, to use the phone, to use email. Um, and, you know, it's understandable. You, you, you can't blame people for that, that nervousness. Um, and it, it makes it tough to, tough to get at certain sensitive types of stories. There, there may just be certain types of stories that can't be written um, if that's the climate. Yes, down here. Um, <clears throat> Mr. Lichtblau, is that how you pronounce your name? Uh, it's Lichtblau, but I've, I've heard it all, so don't worry. How about Eric? How's Eric that? is fine. <laughs> Eric's great. My name's Todd Wiggins. I'm also in the uh, journalism communication industry. And um, like you, I've done my share of investigative reporting, but I have a question. This is kind of more abstract, but Ten years from now, how do you think uh, technology is going to affect how we go about reporting? Because, you know, there's more likely to be more cameras out there than ever before. I think there's a trend that that's it's obvious that that's going to happen because it becomes very complicated when you don't have visual evidence of certain issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what do you predict um, the um, the law, how the laws are going to change? Uh, because we have a new administration coming on. There are going to be other military issues that are going to come up from time to time. And America is going to be kind of shy to jump right into anything right now, especially given that the economy is a little bit on the weak side. So how do you think uh, the next five years to ten years is going to pan out? What, what sort of predictions do you have, if any, about what we're going to see? Well, it's a time we're obviously going through tremendous changes uh, technologically and financially in the, in the media. Um, you know, our, our papers like ours are, are doing much more in the way of interactive features, trying to have reporters go out with, with cameras so we can post things. Uh, it, kind of the old guard has resisted that. You know, we like to just go out with a, with a pen and pad and, and you know, leave, the, leave the cameras to the younger generation. But um, we'll, we'll probably be forced to do it before too long. Um, you know, the, the web has just become the, the reality uh, that we have to post our stories now practically, you know, as soon as they're written. Um, and the bloggers, um, you know, really have become a major player in, in driving certain stories, um, uh, stories that, you know, the, the mainstream media, as they like to call us, may, may just ignore. Um, you know, they, they may not, we may not be able to ignore them if they, if they generate enough buzz on the, on the blogs. Um, so that's become a, become a major factor. So. Yes, sir. Is everyone hearing me okay in the back? Is it? Uh, My name is Stephen Shore. Um, the usual explanation is that much of these this behavior was a, a part of the administration was an overly hasty response to 9/11. But there has always been some opinion that there were those who favored unbounded presidential power and used 9/11 as a providential excuse to get the actions they wanted anyway. Which side of this debate do you come down on? I'm glad you asked that. I, I may have sort of a contrarian view on this, but one theme, really major theme of my book, is that the the early steps after 9-11 that the administration took were probably no different than any administration, than an Al Gore administration might have taken had it been elected in, in 2000, or any president responding to a catastrophic attack in terms of res- um, uh, revamping a system that everyone acknowledged was um, uh, was um, simply too slow to recognize the threat of the threat of terrorism um, and, and and needed to be revamped. Um, where and the administration was given wide berth in those first few months and even those early years to do things that would have been unthinkable, um, you know, in in 2000 or 2001. I, you know, I don't necessarily believe that there was, you know, an old, uh, some some pre-cooked plan by Dick Cheney, the you know, to always expand presidential power. But I think it it it, it dovetailed certainly with his view of an eroded presidency. But where where. Where, where I, where, where the people I interviewed within the administration believe that there was um, a, a sort of a veering off course, 
was um, a few years after 9-11 uh, in the, the failure to rethink the long, the long haul um, and where these policies and controversial programs were going. Um, there was essentially the declaration of a permanent state of emergency, a permanent state of war, uh, to the frustration and, and, and um, nervousness, really, of a lot of people, even within the executive branch. Um, you know, I interviewed Tom Ridge on the record, record who talks about the need, the need to adjust the adjustments and how that never really happened. Um, you know, everyone in Washington working in counterterrorism thought in two, late 2001, 2002, there was going to be a second wave of attacks. And it never happened. And the question then was, okay, we've, we've dodged this bullet. What now? Uh, and the, the answer from the White House seemed to be that we're, we're going to live in this new world um, forever, I indefinitely. The, again, to quote David Addington, that we are going to push and push and push until someone pushes back. And um, the, there was really little or no effort to engage Congress um, to work with their national allies uh, um, to adopt sort of a more transparent process. Um, this, this view of, an, uh, of a wartime presidency continued for, for as long as it was allowed to survive until, until the courts in the Hamdan decision and other, and, and other decisions um, pushed back, until the media started writing stories about this. And, and um, I think many people within the executive branch thought that there was a real, again, political and legal fallout that was unnecessary um, had it been handled differently. Yes, ma'am. My name is Catherine Lotriante. I teach at Georgetown, um, both at the Law Center and the School of Foreign Service. And I question about two of the programs you mentioned that your paper had written on, the SWIFT program and the uh, secret prisons. Um, Considering that the two intelligence committees had been briefed on, the lawmakers had been briefed on those two programs, what's the reasoning behind disclosing that uh, to the public when there's no legal concerns that are similar in talking about the NSA program? What are the benefits uh, that outweigh the national security concerns on uh, disclosing information on those two programs? Right. Um well, the secret prisons you're talking about, the, the, the Washington Post's stories, I probably shouldn't address there. I mean, I wasn't involved in that, so I, I could only talk about that kind of in the abstract. Uh, the, the SWIFT one I was directly involved in, so, so I, I guess I'll address that. Um, as I talk about in the book, I, I think that in a different political climate, um, that story might not have run, uh, but it came um, six months after the NSA story ran, in the midst of this huge political debate over presidential power um, and uh, um, checks and balances and things like that. And first of all, there was uh, uh, very few members of Congress had actually been briefed on that program. I told the story before about Barney Frank saying, you know, tell me when you actually want to brief me on a program that's not going to be in the media. Um, most members of Congress and the banking and finance committees knew nothing about that. Um, and, you know, as far as the legality, uh, yes, it, it did not as clearly, it, it did not fall into as, I guess, extra legal a category as the NSA program did. And I'm not necessarily saying the NSA program was illegal, but, but there was, you know, a law that this seemed to butt up against in the, NS, in the case of NSA. But there was certainly, as we said in the initial story about the banking program, it was in this gray area. So I, I wouldn't necessarily agree that it was, you know, clearly legal. There, after our story came out, there were numerous um, rulings and stories in, in Europe uh, by the European Union declaring it illegal. Um, it, it, it was on the um, – it, it did butt up against the law in Europe. And in the U.S., there have been it's, – it's a matter of ongoing civil litigation. So, you know, there, there was – I would argue that there was a public interest. Um, there was the issue of congressional oversight. Um, and it was in the, in the context of this broader political uh, debate that was going on over a similar issue with the NSA program. Um, and and that, that's on the why run it on the – and on the national security side um, – the fact that the administration was 
aggressively going after terrorist financing and, and was aggressively monitoring um, banking records, et cetera, had been you know, widely advertised by, by President Bush himself, by, by his Treasury secretaries, by O'Neill, and then by Snow. Um, and yes, this was a more detailed look. I mean, I wouldn't deny that. I'm not, I'm not going to claim otherwise. It was a more detailed look at that, certainly. But um, did it necessarily tell al-Qaeda anything all that useful that, that was not generally known? It wasn't clear that it did. So you, you, may, you may disagree. And I'm guessing from the question you do. So. Yes, sir, in the back. In one press story that one of the telecommunication executives in California was approached in the spring of 2001, well before 9-11, is it possible that the NSA program was begun even before 9-11? Yeah, that, that was um, uh, the Quest carrier in, in Colorado, actually, um, in, uh, yeah, in, in early, uh, I think it was February 2001. Um, and they were approached about, it's still not clear exactly what, but about um, allowing the NSA to somehow expand its its tech, technical capabilities on U.S. soil. Now, we don't think that that was exactly what this program turned out to be, um, and certainly that, that report has generated a lot of theories, I don't want to call them conspiracy theories, but theories that, that um, you know, that, aha, this program was in existence before 9-11, and 9-11 was just a pretext. I'm not sure, I, and I see heads nodding in the audience as I say that, but I, I'm, I'm not sure I buy that, and, and we still don't know exactly what it was. We, we do know that the NSA was, was certainly expanding its, its ability to use its partnership with telecom carriers even before 9-11 in, the, in their, what they call their transition document that they prepared for, for Bush when he came into office. Um, you know, they talked about their, their technological deficiencies and their need to um, upgrade their, uh, their abilities to um, partner with U.S. telecoms. This is all based on sort of the idea that, um, that most uh, international traffic now transits through U.S. carriers, um, and that, that even calls that um, are from, you know, Paris to Riyadh or emails happen to go through U.S. switches. So the idea was and is that, um, that, that the administration wanted to take advantage of this, this so-called home field advantage, and, and, and that was something that they were talking about even before 9-11. So, if that answers your question. Okay, not seeing any other hands, I think we ought to adjourn. Would you please thank our speaker for giving an interesting talk? Thank you. Thanks for having me. He's going to be available upstairs to sign some books, so we'll, you can join us for lunch upstairs. Thank you.